Hello, and welcome to Crimes and Witch Demeanors. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. On today's episode, we're finally hopping over to the West Coast on our ghoulish tour of the United States and stopping at the Hotel Del Coronado in sunny San Diego, California. But today's story is bonkers, absolutely bonkers. When I started investigating it, I thought it was going to be simple, straightforward. It was an open and shut cold case, according to the hotel website, which we know now never trust the hotel website. Even the Wikipedia article in 98% of the articles I read pretty much made it seem like it was simple. But after digging deeper, oh my God, this is a tangled web of lies and conspiracies. And I'm so excited to tell you about it. But before we begin, I do have a little bit of quick housekeeping I want to get out of the way. Um, In order to make the podcast more accessible, I decided to post transcripts of every episode on the official website. So you can find the link down below, or you can just go to crimesandwitchdemeanors.com and look at the blog page. I do have to go back and transcribe a couple of episodes. I don't know if you realize how much writing I do for these. This episode you're listening to right now is 5,000 words, which is 10 pages, single-spaced. It might as well be a legal brief, which (laughs) lets me transition to my next topic before we get started. Oh God, I'm smooth as heck. So this is a fun fact. Did you know that there was an intellectual property case in 1917 between Mark Twain's family and an author who published a book claiming that they had written it by contacting Mark Twain beyond the grave using a Ouija board? What in the actual hell? I learned about this on a new podcast that I found, Trial by Ordeal. It's a podcast that covers legal precedents and cases that were informed and shaped by the paranormal and strange events. I like my podcast because it has like this blend of archival science and the paranormal. And I think that's fresh, but I honestly think that this concept is so much fresher. Who knew that legalese could be so fun? So yeah, Sarah Arena is a lovely host, and I wanted to shout out her podcast because I figured if you like my podcast, you'd like hers, and us witches gotta stick together. So I love it, but I'll let you be the judge. (laughs) If you like hers, please check it out. You can find it anywhere. But yeah, so okay, housekeeping aside, now that that's finished, (laughs) and speaking of housekeeping, oh my god, my segues are on freaking point today. Let's hop over to the Hotel Del Coronado and delve into the mystery of the beautiful stranger. It was Thanksgiving Day, November 24th, 1892, when a true Victorian mystery began to unfurl. It was on this day that Lottie A. Bernard was born a fully mature and elegant woman who would die only five short days later. I understand, a young woman with short dark hair said, exasperated. But my brother has my baggage tickets. We, we were separated on the train. If you could please hand over my trunks to me, it would be greatly appreciated. Sorry, ma'am. Without them tickets, I can't give you your luggage. But I cannot be without them. They hold all of my belongings. I don't know when I'll be able to find my brother again, so if you could please just turn them over. Railway policy, I'm afraid, ma'am, the ticket man said a little more sternly. It's out of my control. Nothing to be done about it, he said with finality, turning to head back into his booth. (sighs) Fine, the woman breathed, exhaling her frustration like the hiss of a train. 
but I'll be back and you'll hear about this. The man stood there and nodded to her expressionless, encouraging her to keep on moving. Aggravated, the woman, with nothing but her handbag, made her way into the city of San Diego. First, she made a stop at the Hotel Brewster to ask if her brother and his wife, the Andersons, had arrived. The hotel clerk informed her that no such persons were staying at the hotel, nor did they have any reservations for the future. Not finding her brother at the Brewster, the woman made her way to the ferry, and from there, once landing in Coronado Island, she took the little red trolley 1.3 miles to her final destination, the Hotel del Coronado, or, as it was affectionately known to the locals, the Dell. It was mid-afternoon when she approached the Dell. Its massive white facade was blinding, even as the sun sat low in the sky. The Hotel Coronado was the largest resort hotel in the world, and its architectural style was distinct. Constructed entirely of wood painted white with red roofing, it was flanked by two wide and sprawling tower-like annexes with a more rectangular midsection that was dotted with Victorian spires of its own jutting out here and there. The woman made her way up the front steps but did not approach the main doors. Instead, she made her way to a separate entrance off to the side that read, Unaccompanied Ladies, on the lintel. Making her way into the hotel, those inside were aghast. A woman? Traveling unaccompanied in the Victorian era? How very dare she! The woman made her way up to the small desk reserved for ladies like herself, those that would dare travel without the company of a gentleman or older woman. I'd like to book a room, please. The clerk looked her up and down. She was dressed at the height of fashion, wearing a large black hat and a solid gold ring with four pearls and a blue stone set in the center, possibly a sapphire. The clerk could see that the woman was attractive, with her pale skin, high cheekbones, and short, dark hair. Even the two small moles on her left cheek somehow seemed elegant. "'Are you traveling alone, miss?' the clerk replied. "'No, no,' the woman started. "'I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my brother. He's, he's to join me soon.' "'All right, miss, and?' The clerk now noticed she was carrying nothing but her handbag and found it quite peculiar. "'Do you have any baggage?' A look of frustration flashed across the young woman's face. Yes, my brother will be bringing it. We were separated in orange, but we're meeting here, and he has my luggage, you see. That is perfectly all right, miss, the clerk said. And the name for the room? The woman hesitated a moment. The name is Lottie. Yes, Miss Lottie A. Bernard. Thank you, Miss Bernard. And where are you from? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's Mrs. My apologies. Where are you from, Mrs. Bernard? Detroit. And it was at this moment that Lottie A. Bernard was born, springing to life like the goddess Athena from Zeus's forehead, fully grown and mature. But unlike the goddess Athena, Lottie was not immortal. Here we are, Mrs. Bernard, said a young bellboy by the name of Harry West. Room 302. I know it was a source of frustration for you, but I, for one, am glad you don't have any luggage. It saves me from hauling your trunks up three flights of stairs. Lottie laughed. (laughs) Oh, don't you worry. My brother, Dr. Anderson, will bring them as soon as he arrives. Yes, of course, Harry said, nodding, not looking forward to his arrival. I do hope he comes soon. I am ill, you see, Lottie replied somberly. She looked in good health to Harry. Oh, I'm I'm very sorry. Yes, yes, I, I have neuralgia and stomach cancer. My brother is arriving with my medicine to treat me. Well, in that case, I do hope he comes soon, Harry replied, now feeling remorseful about not wanting him to bring her bags. Well, happy Thanksgiving, ma'am, 
Please enjoy your night. You too, Harry, Lottie said, handing him a small tip. Lottie slept soundly that night and stayed on the hotel grounds the following day. She spent it mostly in her room, but spoke to a few guests and hotel employees, most often telling them of her frustration about the baggage fiasco at the San Diego train station and how she wished her brother would come soon. She had also inquired multiple times at the front desk if they had heard word from him. On the morning of her third day, Lottie slowly made her way down to the hotel drugstore. She appeared to be in considerable pain, for which she requested medicine. Miss, you should really see a doctor, the chemist told her with concern. I'm already seeing a doctor. My brother, Dr. Anderson, is a physician. He should be here any day now, Lottie responded before leaving. However, she came back to the store later that afternoon, making an odd purchase consisting of an empty pint bottle and a sponge. On the fourth day, Lottie did not leave her room, save to inquire at the front desk about her brother, who still had not arrived. Dawn broke on the fifth and final day. Lottie awoke and requested that Harry, the bellboy, bring her up a glass of wine from the bar. For the pain, she said. Shortly thereafter, she called for Harry again to bring her a whiskey cocktail. Alcohol seemed to be Lottie's medication of choice, since her brother was still nowhere to be found. Once Harry brought her whiskey, she requested that he draw a bath for her. She hoped the hot water would help soothe her stomach pains. Down the hall, Harry drew Lottie a bath, as en-suites were not customary at this time, even in such a fine hotel, and at her request also brought her a bucket of ice. Thank you, Harry, Lottie mumbled weakly as she made her way from the room to the bath, holding onto the wall for support. I should be finished in an hour or two. An hour passed, and then two. Bzzzt, bzzzt. Yes, yes. Please, could you send Harry up to my room at the earliest? Thank, thank you, thank you, Lottie said over the phone. Harry was sent up to the room and was shocked to find Lottie soaking wet and groaning in pain. Lottie explained to him that she had fallen in the tub because she was so weak and had gotten her hair wet. She went on to mention that she feared her wet hair would worsen her condition and asked Harry to dry her hair for her. Now, that wasn't a service the hotel provided, but because of her insistence, Harry obliged. Lottie seemed to drift in and out of sleep throughout the process and would intermittently whimper in pain. Harry was uncomfortable, to say the least, but he was paid handsomely for his extra services. Lottie tipped him a dollar. Now, a dollar doesn't seem like much now, but in 1892, it was a full day's worth of wages. After leaving Lottie's room... Harry told his supervisor, Gomer, of his concerns. Gomer had some concerns of his own, namely Lottie's tab that she had been running up. Lottie was paying for her room daily, but her expense tab, which was customarily paid at the end of a guest's stay, was starting to rack up. Because of his concern for her health, mainly her financial health, Gomer decided to visit Lottie in her room. Gomer found her just as Harry had described, sick in bed and writhing in pain. Ma'am, I came to check on you. Harry told me you weren't feeling so well, and maybe I could call a doctor for you. Gomer looked at the fireplace, which was unused. You really should light a fire, miss. There's a rather frightening storm coming tonight. No need for a fire, Lottie said. I'm so near death now. All the doctors have all but given up on me in my condition, save for my brother. Calling another wouldn't be of any use to me. I, I'm sorry, ma'am. Um, then there is the issue of your... Your tab, Gomer said awkwardly. Telegraph Mr. G.L. Allen in Hamburg, Iowa, Lottie said, 
he'll cover any additional expenses. Lottie did decide to light a fire, though not as Gomer had recommended. She rang Harry once more and requested some matches. Harry offered to bring a box from the store, but Lottie insisted that she only needed a few. Reluctantly, Harry gave Lottie a couple of matches that were in his pocket. Lottie took them from his hand and lit one. She tossed it into the fireplace on top of what appeared to be a stack of papers or letters, effectively burning them to cinders. Harry didn't want to intrude, but he found it odd. That afternoon, slowly, still in pain, Lottie made her way down to the pharmacy once more. During her conversation with a real estate agent, T.J. Fisher, she expressed that she had to head across the bay into San Diego. Naturally, Fisher advised her not to, not only because of her frail condition, but because the approaching storm could spell trouble for her journey. Disregarding his warning, Lottie went on to say that she had to go and identify her items at the train station because of her lost baggage tickets, and she promptly left. Lottie began her journey to San Diego around 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, first riding the trolley, where she required the conductor's assistance to board because of her weakened state. And then afterward, she took the ferry across the bay and into San Diego. Lottie first made her way into a store called Ship Chandlery and asked the clerk if he sold revolver cartridges. He did not. But he told Lottie where she could purchase some, from Chick's gun shop down the road. Lottie followed the clerk's advice and went to the gun shop and told the owner that she wished to purchase a revolver and cartridges as a Christmas present for her friend. The owner of the shop sold her what she requested and even demonstrated the proper use of her new firearm. With her new purchase in hand, Lottie made her way back to the Dell. After placing her newfound weapon safely in her room, Lottie made her way down to the hotel veranda. There she stood overlooking the ocean, watching the black storm clouds rolling on the horizon, approaching faster and faster, bringing with them a sense of foreboding. Electric anticipation crackled in the air. The winds grew ever stronger, carrying the soft scent of jasmine on its wings but it was tinged by something else. Beneath the heady floral notes, the unmistakable stench of death and tragedy loomed. From inside the hotel, Harry watched Lottie on the portico, not knowing that this would be the last time he would see her alive. Breaking from her reverie, Lottie approached the front desk where Gomer was enraptured in work. Gomer had spent all evening fulfilling requests from guests, to switch the rooms from the seaward side of the hotel to the landward side to buffer themselves from the storm. Has there been word from Dr. Anderson? Lottie inquired. No. No word from your brother, same as always. I see. Um, well, thank you, Lottie said. Good night. Good night, Gomer said sharply, annoyed not only by the fact that she had interrupted his work, but also because she still had an astronomical tab to pay, and he had not heard word from her brother, nor the mysterious G.L. Allen he had telegrammed earlier that day. That night, the storm lashed against the Hotel Coronado, slamming it with torrents of rain. Lightning shot through the sky in spidery veins, and the thunder roared like a circus lion. By dawn, however, the beast had been tamed. The sun broke through the clouds to filter through the morning mist, its beams falling gently on the body of Lottie A. Bernard. An electrician found her sprawled on the veranda steps leading down to the beach, a revolver in her hand, evidently the cause of her present condition. The coroner claimed her death a suicide without examining the body, 
If he had, he would have noticed the bullet did not come from her gun. A circus of an investigation followed, riddled with more twists and turns than a corkscrew. And that is how Lottie A. Bernard lived and died in just five short days. The body went on to be identified, misidentified, and identified again, but her true identity is still a source of conflict and mystery. Was she a runaway? A con woman? An assassin? Depending on who you ask, she was either one of these things or all of them. Regardless of who she was in life, her restless spirit still haunts the Hotel del Coronado. is the story of the beautiful stranger. I wrote the narration based off historical accounts, including witness testimony from transcripts of the coroner's inquest and several news articles. In fact, her physical description from the beginning, I actually just reworded the description the police gave of her body that was published in the Los Angeles Herald. We have a lot, and I mean a lot, to unravel before we can even talk about the haunting, because this case is just next-level confusing. In typical Victorian fashion, the press coverage of the investigation into her death is insane and probably false, but who was Lottie A. Bernard? It really depends on who you ask, but I'm going to tell you what the historic record states before we get into warring theories by some overzealous authors. Initially, investigators had no reason to believe that this woman was anyone but Lottie A. Bernard. In fact, $25 did end up being wired from a G.L. Allen after her death to cover her tab. The deputy coroner Stetson didn't hesitate to rule the death a suicide. As mentioned earlier, he did not even perform an autopsy. The gunshot wound to her right temple and the fact that she was holding a gun was enough to convince him. However, years later, it was discovered that the bullet that caused the wound did not match the caliber of the pistol that Lottie had purchased. There was no way it could have made that type of wound. So perhaps Lottie bought this gun to protect herself from someone. When the police did search room 302, they found quinine pills, handkerchiefs embroidered with the name Lottie or perhaps Louisa Anderson, and a pile of burnt letters. The items that weren't destroyed in the fire had strange scrawls on them. One simply just read, Lottie A. Bernard. Another just said, I don't know any such man. And there was even an invitation to the Dell, signed by famous actresses Louise Leslie Carter and Lillian Russell. After searching her room, the police sent another telegraph to Mr. Allen in Iowa, but did not receive a response. In the meantime, they did find a Lottie A. Bernard from Detroit, but she was perfectly alive and well. And it was at this point it became clear that Lottie was nothing but an alias. The police published a sketch of the body in the paper, which I put on the podcast Instagram at Crimes and Witch Demeanors. And a Mrs. Wiley from Detroit came forward after seeing the rendering and reading the description of the corpse in question. She said it had to be her daughter, Lizzie Wiley. Lizzie had eloped from Detroit a few weeks earlier with a married man. The description matched Lizzie to a T, even right down to the two moles on her left cheek. Mystery solved, right? 
Well, almost. We wish it was that easy. It's never that easy, is it? There was one major issue with the body, and that was Lizzie Wiley had pierced ears, and the cadaver in question did not, nor did it show any signs that it ever had. If you ever had pierced ears, you know that you're going to have that mark forever. I've had my ears pierced. I haven't put anything in them for years. Still there. Nose pierced. It's not anymore. Still there. Belly button I had pierced as well. The mark is still there. Um, So I'm convinced that it can't be Lizzie Wiley, even though some people are absolutely convinced it is. But clearly they've never had a piercing. Those holes do not close. And if they do, you can tell that there's a hole there. It's never going to be like fresh flesh again, especially on a dead body. So hearing this, Mrs. Wiley telegraphed her niece in Pasadena to go and identify the body. But unfortunately, there's no record that she ever did. Now, the newspapers published that the body was Lizzie Wiley, and at this point, Mr. Allen finally responded to the telegram. He explained that he knew Anderson Bernard, her husband, though he'd never met his wife, but he sent the $25 to her as an act of charity. Now, a few days later, Mrs. Wiley received a letter from her daughter. She turned out to be alive and well in Toronto, living with this man that she ran away with. So now the body again was officially unidentified. It ended up being embalmed, and it was actually placed on display in the window of the undertakers, hoping that passerby might recognize her. And of course, in Victorian fashion and just in human nature, people flocked to see the mysterious body in the window, mainly Victorian women. Despite all these people coming to look at the body as some strange artifact, no one could identify her. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles... A maid by the name of Katie Logan had been missing since November 23rd. She told her boss, Mr. Grant, that she needed to sign some documents in San Diego and that she would return before Thanksgiving. Now, Katie Logan showed no signs of illness the day that she left, and Mr. Grant claimed that she didn't take anything with her. She only left with her satchel. She left her trunk behind. So, bringing this information to the police, the trunk that was left behind at the Grant Estate in Los Angeles was then opened. The trunk's contents revealed that yet again, the woman in question was not Katie Logan, but instead Kate Morgan. Inside the trunk was a lock of baby hair, old photographs, and a tin with the name Louise Anderson on it, and a marriage certificate of a Kate Farmer to a Thomas E. Morgan, and they were both from Hamburg, Iowa. It turns out that Kate had been married to Thomas, but then she left him for his stepbrother, none other than Mr. G.L. Allen, the sugar daddy. Mystery solved, right? And again, not quite. Now, Kate and Allen's relationship was fraught with its own dramas. Allen was an avid gambler, and Kate was a con woman. Their most common trick was to have Kate flirt with wealthy men on trains, and when the gentleman wanted to, um take it to the next level, so to speak. Kate would actually say that she would love to, she would love to take it to that level, only if they could beat her brother in a game of cards. Which to me is like, what? That seems suspicious in itself. Like, oh yes, you can have me, but oh, here's my brother. If you could beat him in a play of cards, you can have me as a prize. I know times were different then, but at that time, you that had to have been suspicious, right? Like, am I the only one? I don't know. I'm asexual, so I don't understand the... Uh, the lure and pull that uh, men experience in certain ways. 
So who knows? Maybe certain members can overpower the brain. I don't have that problem. But regardless, they would play a game of cards where it was rigged or they would cheat and swindle the lustful gentlemen out of their cash. And apparently it was during one of these such train cons that Kate and Alan had gotten into an argument as their train was leaving from Orange. And so that ended up having Kate leave Alan and take up a position in Los Angeles at the Grant home, where she changed her name to Katie Logan. The brother that Lottie was constantly asking for may have been Alan, since she usually referred to him as her brother during their scams, but we can't be certain about that. People also say that while she was working at the Grant home, she told some people that her name was actually Lizzie and then corrected herself and said, um, Kitty, um, it's Kitty, not Lizzie, it's Kitty for Kate. So that's weird and only confusing things further with this Lizzie Wiley connection, especially because Lizzie Wiley's aunt's name was Louisa Anderson, which were the names on the handkerchiefs. So nothing is really added up yet except maybe her stomach pains were explained by the fact that she was actually pregnant and that she didn't have cancer. Kate, no, Kate Morgan, yes, Kate Morgan had a history of miscarriage. Her first child she had ended up dying. There were complications during the pregnancy, so it was likely that she was experiencing these pains with this new child because of her past medical condition. I don't know. Don't quote me. I am not an OBGYN. So now they identified, question mark, the body as Kate Morgan. So what were they to do with this body all the way in San Diego when everyone she knows is in Iowa? Well, the coroner called J.W. Chandler, who was Kate's grandfather, and asked what they should do with the body. I just can't believe what he did. He just sent the money with a message that said, bury her and send me the statement. No one ever came to identify the body as Kate Morgan. Not Alan, not J.W. Chandler, not Mr. Grant. Literally no one saw the body. So how do you know that it was Kate Morgan? It was even noted in one newspaper that the photographs of Kate Morgan from the trunk did not resemble the victim in the slightest. And Kate Morgan was a maid. Where would she get elegant clothes? She was said to have been dressed at the height of fashion, and she had a beautiful ring. Kate Logan dressed rather plainly. She was a maid, and why were the handkerchiefs in the hotel room embroidered with the name Louisa Anderson? And then, most importantly, what happened to the three trunks at the San Diego train station? They disappeared before they could be opened. Some people say that they were claimed, and other people said it was part of this greater plot. And I think that these three trunks are the main confusion among blogs and websites, and the hotel's website even, about these inconsistencies in the case. Because they all say that the woman was without a doubt Kate Morgan because of the items in the trunk. Most articles and blogs seem to be under the impression that the trunk that was opened was from the San Diego train station. But we know it wasn't. It was at the Grant home in Los Angeles. So really, this trunk had no connection to the body that was found whatsoever. Yes, it belonged to someone that they thought might have been the body, but the photographs didn't look like the body, and that there was nothing really connecting them. If these items were found in one of the three trunks at the train station, I would be convinced. I don't know. So either someone took the trunks because it was theirs or they were removed for like malicious intent, which brings me to a book I read called Dead Move by John T. Cullen. So Cullen tries to weave this intricate story that it was really Lizzie Wiley who died and 
She was part of a larger conspiracy involving the real Kate Morgan, the owner of the Hotel Coronado, another man, and also James Dole, the founder of the Dole Food Company and a plot to overthrow the Kingdom of Hawaii or something. To be honest, I I, I did not finish the book. Um, I made it halfway through because I always read things critically and the way that Cullen wrote the book, he seemed so desperate to sell his theory about this thing that it just, it was overly aggressive in a way that I just didn't like. So I put the book down, didn't read it, did more research, and then came across his blog page. Folks, guys, girls, non-binary pals, listen, his blog is crazy. He's crazy, which makes me even less inclined to believe his conspiracy theory. So he goes on this diatribe about other authors rambling, and it reads like Donald Trump trying to discredit his naysayers. He even contradicts himself in his, like, crazed rantings. And um, I just wanted to share these with you because they are next-level insane. Prepare yourself for this. Here is what he says. The Wikipedia entry for Kate Morgan has been doctored by a person with a skewed agenda so that I caution against trusting it. This individual who pops up at every public forum where I attempt to discuss my results is a smooth-talking purveyor of fractoids, details either false or half-true, taken out of context for the purpose of swift-boating a targeted researcher and his published results. His motivations are hazy as his grasp on reality. It's simply in the nature of a story like this to attract the occasional crank who can be as fanatical as a religious zealot in the pursuit of their delusions and therefore capable of Machiavellian means in their service of their ends. A reasonable person would ask, what on earth is the point? It's just a ghost story, after all, or a true crime story that most people barely know or care about. But in a disturbed mind, an entirely different scale of values may be at play. Hello, little colored pills and capsules. Where are you when such persons need you? What on earth? He misspelled Machiavellian, by the way. He even, he, but it doesn't end there. He goes on to attack other authors who have written about this story. As with the spurious Alan May book of 1987, it's best to take most, quote, sources under careful advisement. My own book rests on its own merits and requires no defense from cranks. I'm prepared to defend my thesis at the level of a doctoral monograph. So well defined are my stated methods. What on earth? So (laughs) here's my take on this. If your book could stand on its own merits, then just let it. There's no need to be aggressive. Toxic masculinity can leave the chat. He said himself that a reasonable person would ask, quote, what on earth is the point? And also, quote, in a disturbed mind, an entirely different scale of values may be at play. I'm just going to leave it there because he honestly scares me. He, he scares me. I'm terrified. He's probably scarier than most other ghosts I've ever read about or come across in my personal life. Like, dude, please calm down. So yes, when someone is like, vehemently defending how their facts are real and yours are false, it's an immediate put-off. We've seen how this has worked. I don't trust it. But if you want to read a crazy conspiracy theory that may or may not be true, I'm not saying, I didn't finish the book, maybe it has merits, but I digress. Despite being a 
scary, horrifying, aggressive man, Colin does have a point that I agree with. We agree on something, so don't come for me. I don't think the beautiful stranger was Kate Morgan, and nor does he. Um, We may have different opinions on whether she was an assassin or not, but um, I don't believe she was Kate Morgan. I don't know who she is, and we may never. I honestly had a fan theory as I was researching this that she was actually Sadie McMullen, because we know that Sadie McMullen left New York and went to California, possibly, And the sketch looked a lot like her, but I looked at the dates and she was still in the mental hospital when all this happened. So unfortunately, I didn't solve it with my own conspiracy, but whatever. Hopefully one day the mystery will be solved. And I also hope that Mr. Cullen will never listen to this because the Menger Hotel, the official Menger Hotel found the podcast episode. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but I called the Menger Hotel an upscale Holiday Inn. I don't think they liked that. But I was comforted by the fact that people that stayed at the hotel said that I wasn't wrong. So, sorry, Menger. Upscale Holiday Inn it is. So with all that aside, this mystery, there's so much more to go into. I just don't have time. I'd have to write a book of my own. But I know that you're here to talk about the ghosts or hear about the ghosts. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to finally talk about her ghost. My favorite factoid or story about the beautiful stranger's ghost is that on the veranda where she had died, the street lamp that is above where her body was found never stays lit for long. The light almost immediately burns out and many local electricians had been there to examine it and look at it and they could never find a reason as to why all the light bulbs there burn out. The wiring seems to be fine and whatnot. And I really like this part in particular. It's not one that's talked about a lot, but I think it kind of comes full circle because an electrician found her body. So I think it's fun, I guess, in a weird spectral way that electricians are always coming to the spot where her body was initially found trying to fix these things. It just seems very full circle to me. Maybe it's not as interesting to you. Maybe you want to know about the room that's haunted. So back in the day, it was room 302. Modern day, it is room 3312. And it's said to be incredibly haunted. The book by Cullen is actually named Dead Move because that's what they call it when someone experiences the beautiful stranger's ghost, gets so scared, and then requests to be moved in the middle of the night. To be honest, as far as the haunting in the hotel room goes, it seems pretty par for the course insofar as like hotel paranormal activity goes. Guests claim that the ghost loves to mess with the electricity. She will turn the television and alarm clock radios on by herself. The curtains in the room will move on their own like there's a breeze, but the windows will be closed um, and there's no draft in the room. And even in the dead of summer, dead of the middle of summer, I don't know, the height of summer, I guess you would say, Um, extremely cold breezes could be felt in that room. And the maids that clean the room don't like to go in there because apparently objects move by themselves and the doors close by themselves and it kind of freaks them out. Over the years, many famous people have gone to the Dell. It's a very luxurious hotel. Still, it's not a Holiday Inn and many presidents have stayed there. On one such occasion, H.W. Bush was staying at the hotel and one of his secret servicemen had been assigned room 3312 for himself. And apparently in the dead of night, he ran down to the front desk and begged for his room to be changed. He refused to go back up there. He just requested that they change his room immediately. 
Whatever happened, whoever this ghost is, whatever the ghost did, it was enough to scare a highly trained Secret Service agent nearly half to death. I think if you can scare a Secret Service agent who have like some of the best training in the world, especially deductively, I feel like they could have debunked something. Something crazy must have happened to scare him so much. So if you're ever in San Diego, I definitely recommend trying to book room 3312. Though I hear it does book up like months in advance, and some sources say that they don't even like to rent it out anymore. So yeah, um, that brings me to the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. I started off with this thinking it was going to be this boring story of yet another hotel suicide, and it turned out to be this like insane story. So please don't forget to subscribe wherever you like to listen, and if you listen on Spotify which I have a lot of Spotify listeners. And I think that, like, maybe this is stereotypical. I think it does kind of stem from just the queer community. I feel like we like to use Spotify more. Um, If you do use Spotify, though, please hit the get notified of new episodes, like switch that's there. And that will send you a push notification whenever a new episode drops, which, by the way, is every Wednesday. Next week, we'll be talking about all the wonderful Winter and Yule Witches. I know that a lot of people talk about Gryla on their podcasts, but there's more to Winter Witches than Gryla. So please, until then, stay warm, stay curious, and most importantly, stay spooky. God, I need to get a better sign-off. Lord help me. Bye. (laughs) 